Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in for the final episode of our 2022 SEC Comment Letter Trends Series. This week, we're exploring SEC enforcement actions, which hit a record this year. Companies and finance teams should interact with their auditors as well as the importance of strong internal controls. That's Pete Driscoll, a partner in PwC's national office, who's joining me to walk us through the 2022 enforcement results, as well as noteworthy enforcement actions and key observations. He'll also provide some advice to help you think through your SEC filings. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Pete, welcome to the podcast, and especially for this series, which is all about SEC comment letters. Uh, so thanks for joining me, and so nice to have you here in person. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Heather. All right. So for today's uh, webcast, we are going to focus in on enforcement actions. And it's crazy because I know that this has been a record year with $6.4 billion levied in over 700 enforcement actions. Um, and this is actually a topic that we don't talk about that often on the on the webcast, but I know it's something that people in financial reporting are honestly you know, want to stay away from. Uh, so it's good to know what's going on in this area. Right, right. I, I mean, it's been an extremely active year for enforcement. Um, you know, the enforcement division has shown a willingness to take on more difficult cases, areas where they may find rule violations, but not apparent investor harm, and then litigate more often. And so, you know, Gary Gensler, who's the chair, has been in place for about 18 months now. And we can expect him to to continue to push investigations and cases. And I think those cases will increase and more will be filed. So was it a surprise to you with him coming on that we have seen the uptick or was this sort of, let's say I'll use the word in quotes expected. Actually, I think it was expected Um, in this environment politically. I think that, that, that it's a priority for him. And I think that there's a greater willingness in this environment to bring cases of first impression in particular areas, a few of which we'll, we'll cover today. Um, you know, maybe as background, I could give an overview of the SEC's enforcement division for, for our listeners. Um, you know, the enforcement division has roughly 1,300 employees. It's the largest division at the SEC, and the SEC as a whole has around 4,600 employees. So roughly a third of the employees are in enforcement. Um, it's headquartered in Washington, D.C., but a significant presence is in 11 regional offices. You know, primarily New York and Chicago are the largest offices. And and I, I would say, like, you know, the bulk of the staff is line staff, but the, the enforcement division does have specialty units that, that bring cases as well. So there's a crypto assets and cyber unit. There's the asset management unit. There's the public finance abuse unit. There's FCPA, you know, a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act unit. And then there's an e- a new ESG task force. So, And we'll talk a little bit about some of the cases that have come out of that. And I do think that, you know, there, there's some real linkages between the SEC agenda and enforcement actions. And so, you know, the chair generally sets the priorities for the divisions at a high level. But directors tend to have some autonomy on where to focus. You know, there are 
bread and butter cases, including offering frauds, misappropriations, cases involving registered entities because the SEC is primarily the regulator for broker-dealers and mutual funds and investment advisors, insider trading, which you often hear about over the years, and financial statement cases. But then when markets behave um, in, in a volatile way and there may be market events that happen, it also drives responses from the Division of Enforcement. That can include cyber events. It can, can, can include like market volatility that happened during the meme stock events last year, early last year. So, um, you know, a lot of things drive the priorities for, for, for the enforcement. So you mentioned the number of people, which I was actually surprised to hear. What's the background of most of the people? Is it accountants, attorneys, I'm guessing, or, or who? what types of people are mostly employed there? Sure. In, in enforcement, the bulk of the, the members of that program are attorneys. Um, there are uh, accounting experts, you know, particularly for the financial statement cases, um, there's also some forensic folks that help with insider trading and analyzing trade data, along with a number of folks that look at market volatility. They have some quantitative analysts as part of some of their teams and their risk teams and, and their data analytics teams that help support cases. And then they also have subject matter experts that are industry experts that they've hired in to help educate and and understand some of the sophisticated cases that enforcement attorneys have to. Ah, that definitely makes sense. All right, very helpful background. So one of the things that I actually was not aware of until you just mentioned it was the fact that they've set up this ESG task force. And I know just from reading the news and the headlines, we've seen this past year a lot of enforcement actions in the area related to uh, ESG and since that's been a prime topic for our podcast over the year, thought we could start there. So what are what are you seeing in terms of enforcement actions? Yes, yeah, so that's a great place to start. You know, the SEC has been all hands on deck when it comes to ESG since, you know, really late January, February of 2021. And so um, you've seen some rulemaking, um, a few proposals, a few that are in the pipeline. Um, you've seen exams that have been going on, hundreds of exams where they're going out to investment advisors and mutual funds um, doing ESG-related exams, looking at disclosures and advertising. And then you saw the establishment back in March of 2021 of the Enforcement ESG Task Force. And so far, they've brought two notable cases. Um, one's been a settlement and and one w- is currently being litigated. And, you know, the settled matter involved in an enforcement action against an investment advisor who had made claims that all investments underwent an ESG quality review, even though that was not always the case. And so I think that's important in this space to do what you say you're going to do because of the fiduciary duty to clients. And so this this really gets to greenwashing. The, the settlement included a cease and desist order, a censure, and a civil penalty. Now, the, the, the other ESG case that was brought um, this past spring, it's very different. It's a mining issuer who allegedly made false and misleading claims about the safety of one of its dams prior to a 2019 collapse. And this resulted in the loss of life. The SEC alleges in its complaint that, and and again, this is a litigated matter right now, um, that the company knowingly used unreliable laboratory data to obtain stability declarations for the dam. 
They misled mine safety auditors, and they made false and misleading statements to investors, among other things. The SEC is seeking a permanent injection, prejudgment interest, civil penalties against the company and certain of its executives. And, and you know, I think the point of these two cases is it, it comes down to the accuracy of disclosures made to investors, whether you're an issuer or whether you're an asset manager. So I want to come back to the second one, but in a way, I think that one's a little easier for people to understand because there's a precipitating event, that dam collapse. The first one, it's this that they have a sense that there could be an issue or are they just looking across the board? Like how do they identify a company that they should, you know, that they may ultimately take action against. So it's interesting. The risk uh, folks that are at the SEC, whether they're in examinations or enforcement, you know, they run, they have text analytics abilities. They look do machine learning on filings. And so they'll identify asset managers as well as issuers that focus on ESG. And then in this case, you know, enforcement looks at a number of different factors but so much of it is based on the representations that the firm makes to the public or to its investors. And so they look at things like trading and the portfolio holdings. If you're a money manager, they look at proxy voting. If you say that you're voting proxies in an ESG way, they're looking at the actual how you voted those proxies. It's a number of things they, they focus on. They look at expertise. Um, they look at scoring systems because a lot of firms will say they have great scoring mm-hmm. systems. And, you know, they'll kind of kick the tires on those to see, you know, is it really operating the way they say it does? Okay. So that's definitely uh, interesting. And to your point on the number of sort of ongoing investigations, maybe we're going to see more on ESG. But then if we just take a step back um, and look more broadly, the second case you mentioned was specifically about false and misleading claims. That one was ESG. I know it could be broader though. So are we seeing other types of cases that sort of hinge on false and misleading claims? Actually, we are. There was a recent one where the SEC brought a case against a large company and its CEO um, for making materially misleading statements about the safety of its transportation-related products. And they reassured the public and investors that there was not a safety issue. The company and the CEO knew at the time that there were concerns raised about the safety certification process of its products, and yet they failed to provide accurate and complete information. You know, the result was several hundred million dollar civil penalty, along with a penalty against the former CEO. You know, there was no disgorgement, and, and I thought that that was notable, and, and I think that there's some, a theme there that we're seeing in recent cases that we can talk to. Um, you know, as you know, that like disgorgement is a remedy that the SEC seeks, and it requires, you know, a defendant or you know, a party um, who profits from illegal or wrongful acts to give up those profits they made as part of the settlement, as part of the case. So I want to come back to disgorgement. Is it a coincidence that both of those cases with false and misleading claims were about safety, or is it is that because that would be an area where potentially a company could be making false and misleading claims? You know, I think that's a great question because you think about, um, you know, typically these types of cases, it can relate to anything. Mm -hmm. But I think in these two cases, there was some pretty significant um, ramifications of the, the false safety 
representations. And I think that that's what makes those significant. And I think the egregiousness of it, you know, it, it warrants the SEC action in many ways. I think what they're trying to do is deter other individuals for, from acting similarly and making misleading representations, particularly when it comes to safety. Yeah, definitely a good cautionary tale. So let me come back to disgorgement because I do think that was an interesting sort of distinguishment you made there that they did have a, a dollar penalty, a large dollar penalty, but they didn't actually go after um, specific amount of, of profits. And is this like a newer trend that we're seeing or how, how do those two things kind of relate to each other in terms of just going after a dollar amount, a civil amount versus these disgorgement amounts? It's interesting because, you know, historically, and when I was on staff as an enforcement attorney, you know, the, one of the main tenets of the SEC is to in, protect investors. And so usually with enforcement, they look for harm to investors and try to recover those assets for the investors to make them whole if they were wrongfully harmed. And what we're seeing is a trend, and we saw it very recently. There, there was a large settlement with 15 Wall Street firms, um, broker-dealers and investment advisor, for failure to capture and retain electronic communications outside the firm's systems. And so this was a case about communication tools such as instant chat, personal devices, mm -hmm. among other things. These cases were unique for many reasons, including the fact that the SEC collected $1.1 billion in civil penalties, imposed no disgorgement, and did not allege other violative conduct such as the misuse of non-public information. Mm. They, they, you know, it was, it was a record-keeping charge. And so when you think about that, it's okay, they didn't have these communications in their books and records, but there was no allegation that traders traded on this information, that there was collusion and communications between two firms that ultimately harmed the markets or harmed investors. And so I thought it was interesting that you see such a large amount of civil penalties where the largest harm was that it wasn't recorded in the record. So I think your point there is so interesting because what you're saying is it's not that people sort of circumvented the systems and then um, acted maliciously or in inappropriately. This was just maybe it was more convenient for them or, or, or otherwise. And, but because that was against the firm policies, then that is what resulted in the penalties. And that is a very interesting distinction that when I read about these, I, I obviously noted the dollar amount, but didn't really pick up on that subtlety. And I think that's a very important point. It particularly, think about where we are. We're coming out of COVID. And these cases covered time periods where COVID happened. Oh, yes. People, remove, they moved to remote working. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was at the SEC, I mean, the big focus was, you know, serve your clients, continuity of markets. We don't want disruption because of the pandemic. Do what you need to do to help your investors and clients continue to invest money, participate in the markets. And what we saw is, is well, maybe some of that could have been, you know, off-book communications mm -hmm. that, you know, historically you wouldn't expect, you know, they were just trying to serve the clients right. potentially. And in some cases, I think there were controls that, that, that should have been in place that may not have been. But part of that was advancements in technology as well that, you know, firms continue to face federal securities laws that have been written 
mm-hmm. decades and decades and decades ago and you know trying to apply them in current environment with current technology. Yeah, well when you think of how things have evolved so quickly, it is a lot a lot to think about. So definitely an interesting case or uh, cases, multiple cases uh, to talk about. So then I think I, I'm sure most of our listeners are thinking, okay, I'm not making false safety claims and I'm following my procedures for communications or, you know, for non-financial services companies who don't have these same types of restrictions. Uh, so they're all th- they may be thinking, you know, I'm sort of off the hook here. However, how about just the more traditional cases against, um, you know, issuers involving restatements? Yes, that, that continues to happen. Um, the SEC brought a settled action against an issuer who offered and sold unprecedented amount of securities, billions of dollars in excess of what it had registered with the SEC. The SEC found that the issuer failed to put in place any internal controls around real-time tracking of securities offered or sold off of its SEC-registered shelf registration statement. You know, the issuer ultimately had to offer rescission to investors who had purchased securities in the relevant unregistered transactions. The issuer also had to file amendments to its annual reports on Form 20F, restating their financial statements to include a provision and contingent liability relating to the overissuances, and disclosing management's conclusions as to the ineffectiveness of internal control over financial reporting. And disclosure controls and procedures due to a material weakness identified in the ICFR. You know, the relief here was a cease and desist. It was disgorgement. It was prejudgment interest. And it was civil penalties. And it, it totaled million, hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, and this one, I mean, maybe not in the, the realm of billions of dollars, but that's this one maybe some of our listeners could see happening if they have a shelf in place. You would hope not, but maybe something to check your controls over if, if you do have a shelf. So it's an interesting one to talk about. How about another one I know people are often interested in is anything involving inaccurate books and records. So, right. There was a, a recent settled matter involving a non-U.S. subsidiary of a large consumer products company that had purchased the subsidiary approximately five years prior. And post-acquisition, the parent left in place the subsidiary's policies and procedures, not incorporating the parent's practices and controls. The subsidiary's management was able to override controls and inaccurately record financial results for four years, including improperly overstating revenue by recording shipments on unordered products and improperly using reserves. You know, the company had to amend its annual report disclosing the misstatements. The commission found that the company violated sections 13B2A and B of the Exchange Act and imposed a cease and desist order along with civil penalties. All right. And this one also, I think, is a good cautionary tale because I think often when there is, you know, an acquisition, so much to do, so many things going on that maybe you do leave in place those other controls and policies. And I think this is a good reminder that you really need to get them into sort of the corporate uh, corporate control as soon as you can. Absolutely. All right. So definitely a lot of theme of this internal controls, but then let's go back um, to some of the earlier cases. So like, for example, the Wall Street case, we were spent so much time talking about, which really gets to controls around the use of the technology. And in that case, we talked about the fact that things were changing so quickly, the companies maybe didn't keep up. And or have we seen any other cases 
where we're seeing something where, you know, this innovation is maybe the regulations are also not keeping up or the innovation sort of crossing regulation. We have, you know, recently the SEC brought a settled action against a large alternative data provider for the mobile app industry. And, and, and this has been a big priority for the SEC for a couple years. What alternative data is, it's not your typical data that corporations would use to make decisions. It, it's data such as satellite imagery, you know, foot traffic into stores, credit card spending. And typically firms buy this from third-party vendors. And so in this case, the SEC alleged that the company engaged in deceptive practices and made materially misleading disclosures about how its data was derived. In fact, the company used data in ways contrary to what it told providers to make the app more valuable to sell to trading firms so they could use that for investment purposes. The case resulted in a cease and desist order and civil penalties imposed against the company and an officer and director bar and civil penalty against the former CEO and founder. All right. So that's definitely a lot to think about there. Let me then go back to sort of something you mentioned at the beginning and an area where I know we have heard from Gensler that's a priority. It's cybersecurity. And we did see the proposal this year. But, you know, kind of what is going on? What what have we seen from a proposal point of view and then from an enforcement point of view? Right. So cybersecurity, you know, with the proliferation of state actor issues and attacks, as well as cyber criminals. It's been a huge focus point for the SEC over the last five, six years, but particularly now. And so you've seen two recent rule proposals, um, one involving issuers and one involving investment advisors, mutual funds, private funds, um, with regard to enhancing cybersecurity risk governance and transparency involving cyber breaches. You've also seen some examples of enforcement actions out of the SEC's crypto assets and cybersecurity unit. So they have a unit that actually focuses on cybersecurity, and they have expertise in that unit. Um, you know, some former CISOs at the agency that help support that. You know, and for cyber, you know, the particular focus is on timely and accurate disclosure of breaches and disruptions. You know, one example includes a recent settlement involving a cyber intrusion exposing massive amounts of consumer data from over 13,000 entities. The SEC found that the company made material misrepresentations and omissions about the data breach, including not disclosing the breach itself. Um, ultimately, the SEC ordered the company to cease and desist and imposed a civil penalty. But this is one example of several cases continuing to be brought as the SEC prioritizes cybersecurity. All right. So yet another cautionary tale uh, there, Pete. So I think listening to Pete probably makes all of our listeners want to go double check controls, processes, procedures, and otherwise. But I know you've spent a lot of time looking at different cases and involved in different enforcements, and I'm sure have some good advice for our listeners as they look ahead and think about preparing their their year-end filings. Yeah, so it's interesting. There, there, there's a very, very recent case just came out a few weeks ago, and it was brought against an issuer for failing to disclose both in its filings along with to its auditor that there was an impending action about to be brought by the SEC. And the investigation related to the company's investment in another firm, the SEC had issued a Wells notice, which, which is a notice to a defendant outlining 
that they believe that there's been securities violations and this is their intent to sue the defendant. And and yet the company's executives in this case, they didn't disclose the fact in its filings into the auditor. You know, the company was required by GAP to disclose the potential SEC action as it was reasonably possible to lead to a material loss. So this led to permanent injunctions against the company executives, penalties, and officer and director bars. And the case really illustrates how companies and finance teams should interact with their auditors as well as the importance of strong internal controls. All right. So I think you're aware of um, I have been interviewing Kyle Moffitt for this podcast, and he's been on for a few. I'm going to actually ask you two questions I asked him to see how I'm going to pit the two of you against each other. All right. So first question who was the very first SEC chairman? And if you need a hint, I can tell you when he was the chairman. Joe Kennedy. Excellent. I have to say Kyle got that one right too, but I have faith that you're going to do better on the second one. How was he, uh, Joseph P. Kennedy related to President John F. Kennedy? Joe Kennedy was John F. Kennedy's father. All right, go Pete. Kyle did not get that answer correct. Yes. So yes. Um, so now you have some bragging rights against <laughs> Kyle. Um, so Joe Kennedy was his father. And for the, our listeners that didn't hear that other podcast, I will share that three of Kennedy's sons attained distinguished political positions. So as, as I'm sure most of you are aware, John F. Kennedy served as a U.S. A senator from Massachusetts, and he was 35th president of the U.S., Robert F. Kennedy served as the U.S. Attorney General and as a U.S. Senator from New York. And Ted Kennedy also served as a U.S. Senator from Massachusetts. So anyway, Pete, your uh, knowledge of SEC trivia and, I guess, political dynasties in the U.S. is as a head of Kyle's. What so. about Schwarzenegger? <laughs> there you go. He's a son-in-law. I, I, I should have asked you that question. <laughs> exactly. So, all right. Well, Pete, such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Heather. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.